Welcome to another episode of Columbine and them and you and me and everybody. Today, we'll listen to the story of Zach Rissmiller. Well, my name is Zach Rissmiller. I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. I attended Columbine High School. I had a pretty awesome childhood. My parents were upper middle class earners. They took care of us and they were really good people on top of it. So I think that was uh, a big part of my childhood was having a really nice upbringing. No issues, no problems. I had three other siblings, identical twin sisters and a younger brother. My younger brother also, well, we all attended Columbine High School, but my, my younger brother was uh, also enrolled at the time. What kind of kid were you? Um, I was very into playing music and playing guitar since I was six. So that was a, a big deal for me. I also played a lot of sports, football and baseball and some other things. And then just hanging out with friends. Those are the things I love the most. Yes. Okay. Did you enjoy growing up in the 90s? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. I can't quite fathom that the 90s have been so long ago at this point, but I guess this gray kind of shows uh, how how bloody old I am. <laughs> and uh, what uh, were your relation to school? Did you like school? Did you enjoy going to school? Not really. You know, the people that I hung out with... Um, you know, I played sports, but I didn't really hang out with the people who played sports. So I was more friends with people, other people who played music. And so, no, I didn't really want to be in school. I wanted to be playing music as much as I could. Uh, can you share a bit about your experience at Columbine? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. We had this like uh, closed circuit television, basically like announcements, right? Uh, in the morning. And basically they were student run. So I got to do that and I got to make all these like short videos and stuff when I was in high school. And I loved that. I loved being around all the people who, you know, were playing music and all the people who were just down to make a fun evening of like a barbecue and maybe even bring like a PA set up and have like a dance in the park. And we made a lot of fun. It was, it was a good time. What are your views on the atmosphere at Columbine? I would say it's probably like any school. There's bullies. There's people who don't like you and you don't like. And that just doesn't extend to schools. That extends kind of everywhere, right? For me, it's always been like this narrative of people were mean to everybody. And I just never experienced that. Sure, people had disagreements. Sure, people got picked on. But I would say that it's probably no different than any other place in the world, probably. And as a kid, uh, as a teenager, were you concerned about subjects like Guns, violence, cool shootings, mental health issues? No, <laughs> I was completely ignorant to all of it in its entirety. I wasn't even really sure that those things you would hear every once in a while, like, okay, well, that happened at this, like, you know, it's, it's like a dangerous school. There's like gangs and stuff in it. Just think about it. And you're just like, eh, it would never happen around here. Right. You know, come to find out it happens everywhere. Yeah. As a kid, like those subjects weren't really even like a part of my vocabulary. Mental health was something you had to do if either one, you started acting badly or two, you were just messed up, you know? 
after everything, like it's came a very big part of my vocabulary. So April 17th, 1999, I bought a car. It was the first car that I'd ever bought. My parents helped me with a, a down payment, but I had been working pretty hard to save up money to buy this car. And I finally had enough with what my parents were willing to help me out with to get this car. I was so happy. It was a white Honda Civic. It was a manual transmission, so like shift, right? I had never driven one <laughs> before, but I still, I wanted it. It was like this, it was a symbol of freedom for me. Like turning 18, it was about to graduate high school. And this was a present for my parents to go off into the world, go to college and these sorts of things. April 17th is also my younger brother's birthday. How was the day of the shooting for you? The day was exciting for me. So forgive my ignorance of French culture, but in the United States, 420, April 20th, we write our days, month, then day, right? So 420 is April 20th. It's a big like marijuana holiday. So me and my friends decided that we were going to not go to school that day. And we were going to get really high. And in the morning on the announcements, you know, I was really excited about this all day, but I wanted to do the announcements first before we went. So in the morning announcements, we put on the, uh, our phrase of the day thing. It was like, what are we doing here? It's 420 basically. Signaling to all of my other potheads of like, hey, it's time to go get high, right? And we went and we got high and we went to Taco Bell. And then we finish up and everything was good. I often remark that that meal is like being my last meal of innocence, not quite understanding how the world works. And little do I know, like I'm all about to get slapped in the face with reality. Uh, we decide, all right, we've kind of had some fun and maybe we should go back to school. Graduation's coming up and maybe we should pass classes to be able to graduate, right? So I was a senior in 1999, so I was 18. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we start driving back and a girl put her head out the window because we were stuck in traffic and she said, somebody pulled a gun at school. I was like, what? That's, that's insane. So the police went past us and they had blocked off the road going to the school. So we had went around the block to try to figure out if uh, there was just an accident or something. We, at this point, had no idea there was any kind of danger at all. We're in my car, my brand new car, and the radio didn't work because I didn't go get the code. So I'm in some serious trouble. We went around the corner and all these kids in the, um, the soccer field that was across the street, we had seen a couple people that were just losing it. We walked out and um, uh, saw my friend Lucas and I was like, what happened? Thinking nonchalantly, like, this is not a big deal. And he was like, man, we were running out of the school. They were shooting at us. It was like, whoa, okay, maybe this is a little bit more than what I thought. Right about as I said that, uh, we heard like, just like, pop, 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 pop. And it was like, whoa, what's happening? And then a bunch of ricochets and the way the houses sit, it was echoing back at us. And it seemed like, you know, we may be in a, a crossfire. They may be firing into the field and back toward the school. I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that there were thousands of teenagers on that soccer field and we all hit the deck simultaneously, um, trying to make sure that we were safe from gunfire. And as the gunfire just kept going and going and going, um, it became a stampede. People were running and I had my car. I just started putting people in my car. I think I had 15 people in my Honda Civic. Like we were crammed. 
in there. People diving across other people just to get into the car. We got a safe distance and it was decided that I would just start taking people home from the top down in my car. So I did that. And then all that was left in my car was my, my friend Dave and my friend Lucas. We decided that, okay, we needed to get away from the school, but we needed to get somewhere that had phones so that we could call. So we went to my house, which was a ways away from the school. We started calling parents. My mom met us in the driveway. That's always like the toughest part for me, seeing my mom like that. And then she just said, where's your brother? Uh, in that moment, I had, I had no idea. My mom told me to stay at the house, which I did for like maybe two minutes. I left to go then find my brother and I was determined that either I was going to get in the school or I was going to find him. We started trying to drive to the school because of all the road closures around the school. It was impossible to get past that side of Littleton. Even with all the back roads and everything that we knew around, we just couldn't get there. We ran into some other folks who said that the, everybody was meeting at the elementary school that I went to, Leewood. At the top of the hill, away from Columbine, there's, there's like a, a grocery store, like a subway. We parked my car there and ran the mile that it was to the elementary school. I don't remember ever stopping and I don't remember ever being out of breath. It was just running to get there. Once we got there, we realized, okay, yes, this is where everybody's meeting and everybody that's coming off of these buses are being bussed in after the police had finally started clearing things. By the time we got to Leewood, all of this had happened and we were able to drive all the way around Littleton, dropping people off and making phone calls and doing all of these things, going to my house and then coming back. You know, we're talking about hours of time have passed. By the time we got there, been one bus so far. It was a very, very long time that everybody was trapped in school. And so we were sitting at Leewood waiting to see whether people were alive or not. Bus after bus after bus comes. You know, I see friends and I'm grateful for that, but my brother is still not, not there. And they make an announcement that's basically like, if your child is not on this bus, we need you to go in this room and wait. And it was terrifying because I knew what that meant. It meant that my, like, my brother wasn't going to be home again. We waited and we waited and we waited for that bus to empty. And he was the last person off the last bus to be there. And that was hard. You know, I started hearing the stories and stuff like that of like where, where most of the shooting took place. They start realizing that, wow, exactly where I was supposed to be if I wasn't high. So that it certainly saved my life that day that I decided to do that. But it also made me have a lot of what I deal with today, which is survivor's guilt, knowing that I was supposed to be somewhere that I wasn't. I guess that's my story. Were you able to sleep that night? <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I didn't sleep for weeks. All of the attention that we had and everything like that, it was, you know, it was 24 seven and very much in our face. And I wanted to be around my friends and my friends couldn't sleep either. So we would just stay out. None of us slept. Can you share about the first days after the shooting? How were you feeling? I wasn't sleeping. 
um, I wasn't feeling anything. And that was kind of the biggest issue. It was just numb, like no feeling whatsoever. I tend to be a pretty passionate guy. I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm not afraid to cry, but like I couldn't cry. There were no tears to have. I felt like that was crazy out of character for me. I knew that things were wrong, but you know, nobody really could tell me what it was. And so I just wanted to be around other people that were experiencing the same feelings. A lot of my classmates and these sorts of things, we were always looking for places where we could get together. Well, really that night and then the day after were very intense and very pressure filled because the media was all over us walking around just the park that's across the way Clement Park there walking around there having people jump out of bushes at us PTSD I don't know if it was like a real big thing I think they called it shell shock back then but it was probably not the greatest way to get our involvement with the coverage of it jumping out of bushes at us <laughs> and it's not respectful in any way shape or form had press calling you remember landlines <laughs> how those work you know we had an unlisted number but somehow my number got to just about every news organization because they wanted to know why i wrote what i wrote for the morning announcements is if i knew something was coming yeah i had to explain to my shame why i wrote these things and what i was doing when it happened why i was doing it obviously in the, at the time 1999 like marijuana was not legal it was a bad thing and caused some police visits and other things you talk about weed and the police show up, you know. It was scary on top of all of this stuff. The press is full court pressing. I had to do so many interviews with law enforcement. It wasn't funny or fun. And uh, yeah, one of my biggest regrets is talking to any of those folks. Because I think that all it did was to give me more of a hassle than it should have. I should have just been free to essentially go about my business, but instead... I had to do a crap load of explaining and then re-explaining and re-explaining and re-traumatizing and all of these different things because so many different parts of our news media was, was coming after us. They were literally being very aggressive toward us and they just, I don't even know how to describe the level of aggression and re-traumatization that both the FBI in our case the Colorado Bureau of Investigation as well, the CBI, local law enforcement, Jefferson County law enforcement, and CNN was really starting to ramp up about this time. And I'm not exaggerating when I say every local news station from around the United States in Littleton with a tent, just ambush tactics constantly. The only thing that we could do was find places that were away from these two organizations. We couldn't obviously go back to our school. We couldn't go to other schools because they were in school. So there were no like public options for us to go to. And so we ended up in churches, which brought on a whole other set of problems because I was not raised Christian. My parents are agnostic at best. I didn't know what I was walking into. It was very much a white Christian nationalism, um, these churches talking about how the firearms weren't the culprit here. They were just crazy talking about how my lack of faith in Christian faith was probably the reason why all of these things happened. 
in trying to put the blame on anything other than what the blame should have been on in the first place is those two terrorists and the firearms that they use. It was really traumatizing for somebody that can't think, can't feel emotion, and then being told that on top of it, it was probably your fault. That was uh, it's fucking crazy, is what it was. It was absolutely batshit insane. We couldn't get help from the adults around us because, frankly, I was 18 and you couldn't tell me that I wasn't an adult. So I wasn't going to ask another adult for help because... Like, especially in the United States that I don't know about in, in France or anywhere else in the world, I can only say what we have here, but there's this like real toxic masculinity thing where if you ask for help, you're, you're, you're less than I went through a lot of, I'm a man, I'm not supposed to ask for help. And so I'm having all of these things come at me. I had just turned 18 in November. I'm a freshly minted adult. You couldn't tell me otherwise adults that should have been looking out for us continued to victimize us that was really hard to take in the aftermath of everything so and uh, can you share a bit about the days at chatfield and graduation so chatfield that was interesting right because for the previous four years especially in sports like hated everything about chatfield i had friends that went there but that was the bad school we don't talk about we don't do anything with we you know but it was it was always a friendly rivalry and so we started going there and right away, some friends of mine that went to Chatfield, my nickname in high school was monkey because I could climb anything. They had made me a monkey and they had pinned a ribbon on it that was navy and silver, uh, which is Columbine's colors, the burgundy and silver, which is Chatfield's color, basically made into heart. The ribbons were just skewed enough to make a heart. The first day at Chatfield, we were met by these seaweed lays that were made for us and i still don't know like who did it i know what it means now but i don't i don't know who did it but we were the hawaiian people had made us these seaweed lays uh the seaweed was meant to give us mana and protect us and it was such a cool such a cool thing uh can i take a break for a second yes yes of course like any time sorry no problem at all it seems like uh, these acts of kindness really uh, get to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you uh, explain why? Yeah, the because um, it didn't have to. It always felt like uh, like I was you know, we weren't alone, you know. Yes. That it was. Uh, I think the reason it gets to me is because I feel like I, I always try to give back as much as I can, but I don't know that I'll ever be able to repay some of those things. Just absolute acts of selflessness and kindness and, you know, and it almost felt selfish to accept it. Some of those things, uh, yeah, they're rough to remember. And I don't know why. That's the fun part about it. Remembering this, it makes me sad, but it's also like happiness, you know? People would do that. People would think about that. All of the banners that we got that were signed by all of the schools in Colorado that were hanging up in Chatfield, all of the well wishes and the, uh, for lack of a better term, get better soon sort of things. The visit from the president, which who was Bill Clinton at the time. Those things, you know, they, they mattered, right? I don't necessarily know that it was helpful and healing, but it was, you know, again, you know, that toxic masculinity thing of like, being able to accept help and being able to talk about your feelings and let yourself go. Yeah. 
It's the antithesis to mental health. It's the complete opposite of what men should be doing and men should be thinking about. But it still creeps up on me. And talking about how it feels to be, to feel selfish for taking these gifts, you know? People donated. We had no school supplies. They weren't there. They didn't exist anymore. People donated everything that we could possibly need. At the time, I was doing an internship for a company called Lucent Technologies. And while we were at Chadfield, they allowed me to take one of their like very expensive cameras and kind of start to document all of this. I was so excited because it was a high eight, you know, uh, it was like some fucking technology right there, right? Anyway, they are, they allowed me to take this camera in and Chadfield allowed me to do that as well. Just kind of showing what life was like. And I remember watching the film and just being like, it just seems like nothing happened. Everybody's been told to, and everybody is doing their best to pretend like this didn't happen. And I remember thinking at the time that it didn't feel right to be doing that. We only had two weeks after the shooting to then be back in school and pretend like everything was good. And I think that that you know, was meant to try to get kids back on track, get them back into a routine, get them back into thinking the way that they they do. But I think that probably did more damage than it was supposed to. They had counselors on site, but counselor is a very loose term, like it's just somebody to listen. These were not certified mental health experts. They were just people. And a lot of them were from the same churches that we kind of had gotten victimized by. So I think that that was uh, another thing that just kind of like adults around us letting us down. And I remember the last day of school. Chatfield has two levels and the lower level is the cafeteria. I remember all of us basically just running and just screaming at the top of our lungs. The moment school was out, throwing papers, throwing as many different things in the air as we possibly could. That poor janitor that had to clean that up I feel bad for it. We made a mess, but it was, it was good. It was a good like release. I remember thinking, I feel something. I'm not irrevocably damaged. I can come back from this. There's, there's some hope here. And then it was graduation. For me, it was, it was funny because like graduation again was descended on by all of this media and, you know, very large police and, um, what my mind would have thought was military presence. And I remember thinking, okay, well, they're just here to protect us, right? You know, they're asking us to be vigilant. Like if there's people that we don't know to, to say something. The school had made some pretty big threats about making any kind of statements, making any kind of like show on the stage and these sorts of things. Basically like if you go up there and do anything that we don't think is appropriate, we will literally pull your graduation from you and you won't graduate, period. And even if you have the credits to graduate, if we think something you did was disrespectful, we'll just take your paper away. We knew that they would do it because in the previous year, somebody came dressed up with uh, clown makeup on their face and they got their stuff pulled super quick. Um, so it was like, all right, there was more threats, but then there was like what I would perceive to be military presence. I don't know that that was national guard or military presence there. Very large people with very large guns. So when I was walking across the stage after receiving my diploma, I knew that my 
aunt would be able to see my graduation uh, at the time she lived in Northern Virginia, which is on the other side of the country, which is a almost four hour flight. Um, you know, it was broadcast on national TV, so she was going to be able to see it. And that was cool. So I, I wanted to kind of throw my hands up in the air and like celebrate like that. But I felt they had such decorum around the whole thing that it was just like, I'm on, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, graduation was good. The night after graduation was fun too. We had gone partied quite a bit. That was fun. It was good. And then after your graduation, did you leave Littleton? I went to Metropolitan State, which is in downtown Denver. I had full ride athletic scholarship in cheerleading. I tried, I tried to go to college. It didn't work. I couldn't be in school. It was uh, too much. I'd go to class and just like have panic attacks and fucking leave. It's just too many people felt like to my then 19 year old brain that it was a setup, you know, that it's just going to happen again. It's going to happen on a larger scale. So being in a larger college, like I'm like, this is not going to go well. So I dropped out pretty quick. I lived with my parents for a while. I found a job at Dish Network, which is also in Littleton. You know, I was, I was playing music in a band and that's what really mattered to me. I was working and I had enough to pay my bills, but that was about it. And there, any a piece of extra money went into music equipment and trying to make uh this band into something it was a good time but you know moving on to another chapter it's like um i don't know that i was ever forced to move on it was just like the world just did you know I'm starting to feel again feel passionate about things and the thing that i felt passionate about was making music so i just followed that uh, as far as i could and were you able to imagine your life and look forward to it no, <laughs> I had what was in front of me. I was very broken, very, very broken. I didn't realize that what I was chasing was the only thing that I felt anything for. I felt like anything that I was doing, that's just chasing emotion, essentially. I would be in relationships and I would only be with the person so long as to they made me feel something and it, when they didn't make me feel anything then it was over entirely i was just chasing things that made me feel not looking around and realizing that because i wasn't feeling anything that's that's i mean i was just chasing that i was just chasing the ability to feel again so my mom could see all of this and she could see that i was broken uh, again, you, you couldn't convince me that I wasn't an adult, right? So my mom made me go to counseling, it, which I did not take seriously. I put on a mask and I told the therapist everything that they wanted to hear. It was more of a punishment for me. So I pretended like everything was fine. And instead of getting the help that I needed, I just let it go, going on as if like a, a wound that was just open and festering. My family was really good. My family was really supportive. I just didn't listen to a lot of what they were saying and what they were doing at the time. Uh, my brother did. Uh, my brother was able to you know, move on with his life. And it was always very hard for me to move on. I love my brother to death, but we've not always had the greatest relationship. Uh, we've not always seen eye to eye on everything. He was with his friends. I was with mine. And the two groups didn't really overlap at all. 
Um, and so we just didn't, didn't really hang out anymore. We've, uh, since fixed that when I was younger, I was also, you know, again, just chasing things that made me feel good. My brother didn't, you know, make me feel good. My brother reminded me of the worst day of my life. Yeah, that was hard. My worldview had been small growing up in a suburban American town that was filled with people that looked like me, spoke the same language as me, talked the same way as me, all that. So my worldview was very, very small. But I thought that after Columbine, I, I really did believe that there was so much evil in the world. It was inescapable that at any given moment could happen again. Although my view of the world as far as good and evil has changed, unfortunately, I've never been able to been given hope at any given moment in the United States that it couldn't happen again uh, to me. And as a matter of fact, I know a ton of Columbine survivors that it has happened to again. The way I view the world is still, there's, there's a lot of evil people doing evil things. But I think that for the most part, the world is a good place that it at least tries to be. I think we get in trouble as humans when we start thinking about ourselves instead of other people. And I think that that is the, really the driving narrative or the driving problem behind the world's problems is when people start thinking of the self instead of the lot, you know? And that's consistently been my message is I think that the, the world has a very big empathy problem. Once we figured out how to solve that, we would literally solve all of the world's problems. There's a very large group of people, uh, within the United States that, uh, you must always look out for yourself above all others. And you must pursue the, the thing that is for you and not for anyone else. To a certain extent, I can, I can see where that's, it's good, right? Like you look out for yourself, right? You try to do what's best for you and you don't worry about other people. But I think that that's also so bad and so toxic to the lifestyle that we pretend as Americans to care about. Caring about others just really doesn't register, I don't think, uh, for a lot of people. So I still hold those worldviews for sure. I do think that it's getting better because I think that the access to information, because in 1999, cool, I had like Netscape and like web crawler, shitty search engines for shitty worldwide web, right? It was, it was a tool, but it wasn't really a useful one. My access to information rather was based on what I could get out of the library, right? But even then that was kind of gate kept in the fact that like almost any nonfiction book that was worth a shit was put in a research section, in which case like you couldn't check it out. And although I can't check it out, I can't read the whole thing, right? I think that access to information has brought some change about how other people think and how other people feel. It's brought communities like yours and mine together to a point where like we had a conversation and we met through a social media thing that is very quite literally designed to bring, hopefully bring people together and not be divisive. Unfortunately, it's still divisive and it can be used as a, an awful thing too, but it can be used as a really beautiful thing. Uh, we look at things like the Arab Spring and stuff like that. Like again, access to information brought about change. It brought about healing and it brought about goodness, you know? And I think that that's like, that's what's different now. Can you share a bit about your journey after Columbine? I think I've established that I like 
marijuana and I had a black light in my room. I went to work and I left it on. That day in Aurora, we had a tornado come through and it broke a window in my room and knocked the lamp over. The lamp fell over into a pile of clothes. It's not a surprise that a 22 year old male didn't fucking fold his laundry or have a basket of any kind to put his clothes in. Fell over in the clothes, the clothes lit on fire and burnt up my room, which burnt up a lot of memories, a lot of really important stuff for me. And I had nothing. I had to go back and live with my parents and start completely over again because I didn't even have insurance. It, it literally everything gone. I had no clothes. I had no bed. I had nothing. I slept on a couch for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. My parents welcomed me back. I also needed to like move on with my life and that sort of thing. The idea being that like, okay, uh, I have nothing. I've got to move forward. It kind of made me look at what have I been doing with my life? Like, what do I actually have to show for what I've been doing since I graduated high school? Like, this is nothing. And I got an apartment this time by myself because I didn't want to live with anybody else. I knew that for me to heal, like there was going to be some, some alone time and having to do things that didn't just give me pleasure, right. Or give me feeling of some sort. I was going to have to do some of the harder things like being an adult. I met, well, my now ex-wife was the first actual adult relationship that I'd ever had where we talk about our problems and we help each other out. And it was a relationship that at least started very healthy. We moved to Arizona so I could go to school. In Arizona, people don't know me. I can start over again. And I did that. And then I started to notice that simple things like having a board game night made me happy. It was nice. We wanted to come back to Colorado. So we moved back. We bought a house. And there was a lot of other things that were hidden that I didn't know were problems. I guess it would have been 2009. Crept back up. Made me numb again. Unfortunately, this time, my wife wasn't able to essentially love me through it. I was pleasure-seeking again. I was spending crap loads of money. I left a really good engineering job at a government defense contractor and started pursuing one of my passions, which is making beer. Actually, it's what I still do to this day. <laughs> I make beer for a living and I don't blame her. Uh, but the one thing that she did do is as a stipulation as part of our divorce, I had health insurance until the end of the year, but I had to go see therapists twice a week. And not just a therapist, but a, like an informed trauma specialist. They brought me through a process that's called EMDR. It involves eye movement and uh, sort of reliving past traumas. It was significant to the point like I still couldn't talk about the day and how it was affecting my mood without having huge outbursts of emotion. Um, whether that is ugly crying to the point of not being able to speak to having outbursts of anger because somebody asked me a question. And the good news is, is that through that, my first therapist was able to see that traditional EMDR was not going to work for me because I couldn't get through the things that they were trying to get me through without, again, having like huge emotions. She paired me with a hypnotist who would then perform some hypnosis. And we did probably about 10 sessions of just hypnosis, learning how to be in the hypnotic state. The hypnotic state was just like really deep relaxation to a point of being relaxed that I could do EMDR. The day that we did that, 
I left and I, I promise you, like, I, I don't believe in miracles. But when I left that office that day, I felt like the weight of the world had been taken off my shoulders and I could see things for what they were. I just felt changed completely and entirely. Getting my life turned around was first being taught how to be an adult by an adult woman. Second, it was the getting divorced because hadn't taken care of what I needed to take care of in the first place. You know, it made me realize a lot of things and, you know, I had to go through quite a bit of stuff. I have made countless mistakes. It has made me want to make the world a better place. I talk about these things quite often, wanting to make the world a better place, wanting to make the world a more feeling place, right? Because I'm coming from a position of not feeling anything, right? somebody that has literally lived years of their life without any emotion and i mean any emotion just flat like like robot walking through the world i can tell you that that's what's wrong with the world To be continued in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Columbine, them, and you, and me, and everybody. Take care, and you'll be hearing from us again very soon.